It's been several weeks since we've looked at Acts. It's been our regular series. And last time we looked at Acts, we looked at Acts 3 and saw uh, that Peter and John healed this lame man and had this opportunity to preach the resurrected Christ uh, to a part of the temple crowd. And in our text this morning from Acts 4, we see the response of the religious leaders to that preaching and to that miracle. So let's consider God's word this morning from Acts chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 22. Let's hear God's holy inspired word. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. When they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the men who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name." They called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. This past Monday, Grace and I went to a Thunder game. Now, we've gone to see that basketball team play several times 
And each time I go, I'm struck by something. I'm struck by the fact that right before the national anthem is sung, everybody is asked to, to rise and pray. After doing some research on this, it appears that Oklahoma City is the only team in the National Basketball Association that prays before a game. And this prayer is, is said to be done uh, as a testament to the importance of faith in Oklahoma City. Because Oklahoma City is in the Bible Belt, faith is important, and so the team takes this opportunity to pray. Now, initially, that might seem like a, a very positive thing to do. Prayer before a basketball game, that, that's great. We need to be a praying people. But there's something rather concerning about it. For every prayer I've heard at the basketball games, even though they are led by Christian pastors and, and pastors of Christian churches, I've never heard the name of Jesus Christ mentioned. And this is a, a very purposeful omission. The team specifically asks that prayers be generic and not tied to any particular denomination. You might say, well, that's not a huge deal. At least we're, we're praying before a game. But I think this should serve as a reminder to us the name of Jesus is a despised name. By, by specifically requesting that, that prayers be not made in the name of Jesus, the Thunder basketball team has concern and even fear about this name. There is fear that the name of Jesus Christ will be offensive to some. And so it's better to, to not mention his name at all. And the great danger here is that the uniqueness of Christ and the exclusivity of Christ is done away with. Instead of a prayer in the name of Jesus who alone saves, we are given a prayer to a God who can be whoever we want him to be. He can be Allah. He can be Brahma. The attitude is that so long as we're praying, so long as we're praying to something, we're all right. At best, the Thunder basketball team has grabbed hold of, of a cultural aspect of, of living in the Bible Belt. Uh, they have a love for religious things. But it's reduced it to a, a postmodern gimmick that lulls people's consciences to sleep, thinking that they are doing their religious duty. At worst... They're using these generic prayers to get people supporting the franchise because they think, well, you know, at least this basketball team, it's, it's religious. It, it prays before a game. I, I can get behind that. I can support that. If that is so, then they have exchanged the God of salvation for the God of money. The Thunder basketball team is, is concerned about the name of Jesus Christ. The concern about the name of Jesus Christ is not something new. In the passage we just read from Acts 4, we see that the leaders of the Jews are concerned about the name of Christ. 
Jewish rulers arrested Peter and John and demanded that they preach no longer in his name. They told Peter and John, be quiet. We don't want to hear that name. That name's offensive. That name is troublesome. But Peter proclaimed the glorious gospel that there is salvation in no other. For there is no other name given under heaven for men by which they must be saved. There is one name that will save you. And that is the name of Jesus Christ. And we must not fear this name. This name needs to be boldly proclaimed. We as a church, as a church plant, must boldly, unashamedly proclaim the name of Jesus Christ that he alone saves. So I want to speak to you this morning from Acts 4, calling you to have a concern for the name of Christ, not the concern that the Jews have, not the concern that the Thunder, Thunder basketball team has, but a godly concern. For there is no other name by which we must be saved. And as we develop a, a godly concern about the name of Jesus Christ, we must run from jealousy. In Acts 4, verse 1 through 3, we read, Now as they spoke to the people, that is, now as Peter and John spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of, that, of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and then preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Peter and John were arrested for teaching the people. This was a matter of, of immediate concern to the Jewish rulers because Peter and John were not formally recognized as teachers in Israel. They were uneducated fishermen who, who seemingly had no right to be there in the temple preaching to the crowds. Of course, the, the Jewish rulers did not know that Christ had commissioned them to be preachers. But it was disturbing for the Jews that these men would be there in the temple and, and holding such sway over the people. But we have to realize that this ultimately wasn't a question of, of whether or not uh, Peter and John had the authority to be teaching the people. Instead, the priests were jealous about the crowds that had assembled to hear them priests preach. The text says that they were greatly disturbed. They were annoyed. They didn't like this. And similar things had happened when, when Christ had taught the people. Mark 14 verse 10 says that the priest arrested Jesus Christ because of envy. We see the exact same thing happening here. These priests are envious. They're jealous about their priesthood. They did not want the perfect priesthood of Christ to interfere with their Levitical priesthood. They did not want the, the apostles preaching a Christ that blotted out sins by his death. Because if Christ died once for all in fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrifices, that in effect means there's no longer a need 
for the Levitical priesthood. These priests need to stop offering sacrifices. There's no longer a need here. And in their jealousy, these priests, as they arrest Peter and John, are saying that they would rather have their religious position than a priest who made perfect sacrifice for sin. These priests would would rather have a name for themselves than a name that could save them. Do you see how in saving their own lives, in saving their own position, they were losing their lives? They were greatly disturbed that someone would teach the people the glories of the Messiah. They were not greatly disturbed hearing how they had crucified that Messiah. Do you see their callousness? Do you see their jealousy? And do you see how many people there are today who would do all within their power to make a name for themselves, but would do that at the high cost of forfeiting their own souls? Friends, there's one name that saves, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. Do not let anything interfere with you taking hold of that name. Life is more than the getting of possessions. Life is more than nice houses and nice cars that we have. Life is more than the prestigious jobs and positions we might have. Because all that can be taken away in a moment. It happened to Job. Our houses can burn down. Our cars can break down. We can be fired from our positions in a moment. We can have everything taken away from us. That's all fleeting. It all passes away. Christ said, that's what moth and rust corrupts. The name of Jesus Christ is forever. In a world of constant change, this truth has never changed and will never change. That there is salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. There's a very real danger in in the culture that we live in, in the affluency that's all around us, in the decadency that's all around us. There's a danger that we can become jealous for the things of the world, that we become covetous, so covetous to have all our needs met, that we can slowly but surely lose our love for Christ and instead love the world. I say that because I recognize that that's a danger in my own heart. I love this world, and at times I can, I can just want a quiet and a happy life, to be able to live that with just my family and friends, and not get involved in, in any controversies. But, We're not to live for this world. 
This world isn't uh, supposed to be our best life now. That's the life to come. We need to be living for the life to come and not for this world which is constantly fleeting and constantly changing. When it comes to us being jealous for this life, we can, we can be like uh, a child who, who gets a, a big, huge birthday present. It's in a massive box. It's wrapped up, and as, as he rips off the wrapping paper off that box, and there's, there's this, the best toy imaginable in that box. But the kid isn't interested in the toy. All he wants is the box. And, and we sit back and, and, and laugh and, and, and shake our heads. You know, you've you got your, your orientation wrong. You're focusing on that box. When, when there's this, this unimaginably amazing toy there for you. It's the same thing with our love for the world and our lack of focus on salvation and everlasting things. We're focusing on the box and not focusing on the amazing gift of salvation that God has given us in Christ Jesus. The priest's jealousy for the things of this world kept them from hearing the words of salvation. Instead, made them concerned about the name of Christ. It caused them to, to try to snuff out that name. We don't want to hear that. We just want our priesthood. We must run from a jealousy for the things of this world, but we must also run from an empty religiosity. See, the other reason the disciples were arrested was because they preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, the doctrine of the resurrection was a doctrine that the Sadducees abhorred. Sadducees were one of the most powerful groups of Jews in this period. They were especially popular among the wealthy and the elite. They weren't popular really among, among the common people, but they were in those positions of power. Good, maybe compare them to the religious celebrities that we have today. Of, of maybe compare them to, to Joel Olstein or people like that. Uh, they believed that they were descendants of uh, Zadok the priest, the priest who had served faithfully during the days of King David. While they claimed that lineage, they had very little of the spiritual lineage of Zadok. See, the Sadducees were exceptionally materialistic. They denied the resurrection of the body and the immortality of the soul. In other words, this life was all that there was. There was no resurrection. There was no eternal life. This was it. This is part of the reason they're so greatly disturbed that Peter and John would be preaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Because if Jesus truly rose again from the dead, that meant their theology, their life, their practice was all a farce. It was all a big lie. It's important to see that 
for all their power and worth, for all the wealth and power of the Sadducees, they were dead. The religion of the Sadducees was just a substance of words and tradition. Yes, they were sincere. They loved the Torah. They, they, they loved the five books of Moses. They were very sincere in their faith. They were even willing to kill for their faith. But the sincerest individual can still be dead with an empty religiosity. The sincerity of the sincerity with which you hold your religious convictions does not dictate the veracity of those convictions. And this is one of the most frequent lies we're told today. When it comes to religion, you're told it doesn't matter what you believe, so long as you believe it, so long as you know it's true, well, then it must be true for you. And so you talk to people, and you, you ask them, you know, what, 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 what will happen when you die? Well, the person says, well, uh, I, don't, I don't really know. Well, I don't know if there's a heaven or a hell. I, I like to think there's a heaven, and you know, if, um, I might get, I might even be able to get to heaven. And you know, I, I think I'm, I'm a good enough person to to get to heaven. But just the fact that you believe that you will get to heaven if if you die, doesn't mean that that's actually what's going to happen. Just the fact that you don't believe that there's a God doesn't mean that a God doesn't exist. We live in a world where passion, love, and desire is what dictates truth. It's not the sincerity of your convictions that makes them true. I watched this video on the internet this, this week, and I have no idea if it was real, and um, perhaps some things are, are better left unknown. But this woman was at a, a gas pump, and she was washing her car with the gas pump. She, she must have thought she was at a wash station or, or something, but she was, she was pouring gasoline all over her car in an attempt to, to wash it. Now, like I said, I have no idea if that's a true video or, or what, but that woman's uh, desire to, to want to uh, make uh, that gas pump, a wash station, didn't change the fact that she was pouring gasoline over her car and doing an incredibly dangerous thing. What she was doing was incredibly wrong and incredibly dangerous. And there are many people who are doing incredibly dangerous things with their religion. They take the outward forms of religion and think that that saves them. Muslims live out the five pillars of Islam. They pray, they give alms, they fast, they go on pilgrimages. They say there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. Mormons go on their mission trips. They do the rites and rituals of temple service. They live outwardly moral lives. They might be the nicest people you meet. Roman Catholics go to Mass. They go confess their sins to their priest. They do penance. But none of any of those actions, no matter how sincere they are in believing them or in doing them, will save these people. 
It does not matter how many so-called Christians tell them that it doesn't matter what you believe or do, so long as it's sincere. These people will perish. They will perish unless they believe in the name of Jesus Christ. All their religious practices and beliefs are empty. There's no substance to them. They're like a person going through a dark tunnel. Trying to, to find the end of that tunnel. And they see, see this light. And they think, oh, I can finally get out of this tunnel and go into the light. But that light isn't the outside. That light is an oncoming train. In their pursuit of these false religions, these people are destined for a sure destruction. That's why it's so important for us to be bold in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. The souls of people are at stake. No matter how sincere they are, they will never be saved. But there is one place where sincerity of your religion matters. And that place is if you have the truth. And that truth is is that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. The name of Muhammad won't save you. The name of, of Pope Francis won't save you. The name of Joseph Smith won't save you. The only name that will save you is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you must believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that he is Lord. You must believe in Christ and he will save you. He will surely save you. And we must be calling people from other religions to believe on Jesus Christ. To stop going down this dark tunnel. And confess their sin. Believe in Christ. Let us run from mere religiosity. Let us compel others to run from mere religiosity. That's all the Sadducees had. They had a religion of dead works. Here they had the law of God. They had the first five books of Moses that they, that they elevated and, 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 in a, and tried to follow to the letter. But in the end, that didn't save them. That could not possibly save them. They needed to hear and believe the gospel that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. They needed to hear that in Jesus there's resurrection. As we run from mere religiosity, we must run to the name of Jesus. In Acts 4, verse 5, we read that the day after Peter and John were arrested, they were brought before the Sanhedrin. Now, let me give you a, a few details about the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a judicial council of the Jews. It consisted of about 70 members plus the high priest, so 71 members. And they would all sit in a, in a semicircle and, and judge important matters, important religious matters in Israel. 
I'm not sure how many of you have been to the botanical gardens in, in the downtown area, but around those botanical gardens there, there's a stage and uh, there's a semicircle of, of seats. And that would have been very similar to uh, just the orientation of the Sanhedrin. And Peter and John and, and, and the lame man as well were, were placed in, in the center to, to be judged by the Sanhedrin. And as Peter and John specifically stand in that semicircle, they are asked the question, a very important question, by what power or by what name have you done this? Notice Sanhedrin is greatly concerned about, about the name or, or by what power this miracle has been done. Notice that unlike the crowd that gathered right after Peter and John performed this miracle, the Sanhedrin isn't greatly amazed like they were at this miracle of healing. Well, they're, they're, they're judging Peter and John. And, and Peter even brings this up in his sermon. Uh, you know, this is sort of ludicrous that you're accusing us here. Didn't we do a good deed? Why in the world are you judging us for this? But Sanhedrin is greatly disturbed about this name that they keep hearing brought up. And they're greatly disturbed by that name because they thought they've dealt with that name. They thought, well, we, we crucified Christ. We, we got together and we agreed and, and we agreed to, to put this man to death. Why is it that he keeps coming up? Why is it that there's these rumors that miracles are still being done in his name? Perhaps their consciences were getting pricked. Perhaps they're beginning to wonder, were we right in putting this man to death? Perhaps they're just simply annoyed. Annoyed that, you know, this is still a problem. This man keeps interfering with what we believe and with our positions and our authority. So Peter very boldly confronts both their fear and their annoyance. Peter responds by preaching the name of Jesus Christ. Peter says that Christ is alive. And he is the one who has healed this lame man. He says, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. Peter doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't shy away from the name of Christ. He answers their questions with clarity with conviction, with precision, and with spirit-filled boldness. He isn't worried about offending their sensibility. He, he isn't even worried about speaking to the Sadducees about the resurrection of the dead. 
This is a, a doctrine that, that the Sadducees are continually fighting about. And later on in Acts, we'll see when, when Paul is arrested, that he uses that, that controversy to uh, his advantage. He mentions the resurrection of the dead, and then the Sadducees and the Pharisees immediately start fighting. But notice how this is a much different Peter than the Peter that denied Jesus three times. That Peter was asked about a name. And he denied that name. He hotly denied that name. This wasn't just a, a mumble, but he started cursing and swearing, I do not know Jesus. I have not been part of him. But the denier has become a preacher. And Peter runs to the name of Christ that previously caused him to be afraid because he knows that that name saves. That name has, after all, saved a denier, a Christ denier like himself. Peter knows the mercy of God. He knows that people need to hear about the infinite mercy of God shown through Jesus Christ. The lame man was healed in the name of Jesus Christ. And you can imagine the look of, of consternation and confusion on the faces of these religious leaders when they hear this. They also, but also hear the boldness of the apostles once again when they put that accusation back into the laps of the Sanhedrin. And in effect, they're saying, well, if you are opposed to this miracle that we've performed, well, you're not simply opposed to us, but you're opposed to God himself, because after all, it was God himself who raised Jesus from the dead. This isn't just a fight against us. This is a fight against God. To disagree with us here, you are disagreeing with God. Also see the great love of Peter and John. They could have told the Sanhedrin what they wanted to hear. But instead, they take this opportunity to speak Christ to them. They speak the name of Christ to them, a name that would have been odious and infuriating. They warn them about what they have done. They tell these men that Christ was truly crucified by their hands. But Christ still lives. You crucified this man, but he lives because he is the Messiah. And now you must be saved. Stop thinking you're all right. Stop thinking you're comfortable. Stop thinking everything's all right with between you and God. No, you must be saved. You are in need of the mercy and grace of God. The love of Peter and John was a love that compelled them to tell sinners that their only hope is in Jesus. And we as a church 
must ever develop and grow in that love. One of the greatest dangers the church is facing today is the pressure to be accepting of every religion. We live in a day and age where unity is triumphed over all. The Christian, the Muslim, the Jew, the Buddhist, the Hinduist, what, the atheist even, can all get together and hold hands. Let's stop being so dogmatic. Instead, let's pursue the unity. Let's pursue this utopia. If we, if we all get together and we do this and we agree upon this, well, then there will be no more war and violence in the world. Finally, have heaven on earth. That's a lie. There can be no peace when man is not at peace with God. And the only way that man can come to peace with God is through the name which God has given to men. See the great love of God. God has given us a name. He's given us a name whereby we might be saved. He did not leave us in misery. He did not leave us with the vain hope of empty religiosity. Every single human being worships something. And we're constantly coming up with new things to worship. But God has redeemed us from the vanity of our own religions. He has given us a name. We don't have to come up with with religious systems whereby we might make ourselves acceptable to God. Salvation has been given to us. And this is a name under heaven. This is a name not for the angels, not for the demons. This is a name given to men, whereby men might be saved. Whereby those who have come from the dust might be saved. For those whose days are like the grass, There's a salvation for them and an everlasting salvation. This salvation has come to us because, as we've seen from Psalm 118, Christ was rejected. Christ was persecuted. Peter says, This is a stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. This is Jesus that the Sanhedrin opposed. Was the Jesus that the Old Testament prophesied of? That the Old Testament spoke of with absolute clarity. And Jesus was rejected by these religious leaders. That rejection was part of the prophecy of the suffering Messiah. And that, that rejection resulted in his ultimate exaltation. The miracle of the healing of this lame man is a small example of the exaltation and the vindication of Christ before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin put this man to death, thinking he was a troublemaker, a rebel against God himself. 
But God keeps showing to the Sanhedrin that Jesus Christ was his appointed servant. Not even death could stop Jesus. He rose again from the dead, and now he's continuing to perform miracles. And so it's no wonder that this sermon left the Sanhedrin speechless. Our text says that when they saw the, the boldness of Peter and John, they marveled. They, they sense have nothing really to say. And so that they, they kick Peter and John out of the room and, and uh, they deliberate among themselves. And, and saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. Notice they have no idea what to do. In times past, when Jesus would perform miracles, well, they would say, well, well, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, by the, by the prince of demons. But here they're not even saying that. They're saying, this is a legitimate miracle. What, what in the world shall we do? This healed lame man was a st- who stood before the Sanhedrin was a testament to them that they were wrong in crucifying Christ. They were seeing that Christ is that stone which has become the chief cornerstone. The stone that the builder set at naught, well, no, that's become the chief cornerstone. But they're not... They do not respond in faith. Instead, they decide to severely threaten the disciples. And and they tell them, don't ever preach in that name again. And we're going to continue to see how Christ continues to reign how he continues to work mighty salvation because the exaltation of Christ, the vindication of Christ is seen anytime somebody comes to faith in him. The other religions of the world laugh and scoff at Christianity. They declare war against it. They persecute it. But when somebody is saved... When the Lord has worked salvation, when the Lord has radically changed somebody's life, the only thing they can do is cover their mouths. For there is no name like the name of Jesus Christ. Muslims have used and continue to use the sword to try to convert people. Jehovah Witnesses must use cultic practices of manipulation and trying to compel people to come in. Roman Catholics need ceremonies, rituals, and rites to bring people to faith. They're not Christians. Christians use the preaching of the word and prayer. When somebody comes to faith, it's that supernatural, powerful work of the Spirit in the heart. Isn't that awesome to behold? Isn't it awesome to see how God saves souls through the simple means of the preaching of the gospel? It's more glorious than anything. And each time that happens, 
It is a vindication of Christ. It's a small taste that Christ is indeed reigning and bringing all things in subjection under his feet. It is a testament. There is salvation in no other name. There is salvation in no other name. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, in conclusion, let us have a great concern for the name of Christ. Let us see how that name is powerful and mighty to save sinners. Let us know in our own hearts that there is only one hope in this world. There is only one name under heaven given by which we must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. Let us run to no other hopes. Let us run to no other comforts. For there is one name, one name. And we all must be saved. Not one of us is exempt from that. We all must be saved. And so let us believe in Jesus Christ and let us boldly and unashamedly confess Jesus Christ and give glory to God the Father. Let's pray. Our Father in our heaven, our Father in our God, we come before you and Lord, we praise your name. We praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you have given us that name, a name that is mighty to save, a name that redeems us from our sins, a name that washes us and makes us pure. Lord, we pray that we would ever have a godly concern for that name, a godly concern that compels us to warn people of the danger of pursuing other religions, of the hopelessness of of pursuing other religions. Lord, we pray that we as a church would ever boldly confess the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the salvation you have given us that the stone which was set at naught has become the chief cornerstone, that Christ is risen and exalted, and that men worship and praise him. Lord, may it ever be our desire that you would receive all the glory. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Amen.